So we've said many times that the Buddha teaches about suffering and the end of suffering. And he used many kinds of teachings, lists that he created to keep pointing back to these central truths or experiences. And I spoke the other night about the Four Noble Truths, which is really the most concise pointing that he gave to this central aspect of his teaching, suffering and the end of suffering. Four Noble Truths being there is suffering, there's a cause for suffering, craving, but there's an end to suffering. So right there are are both facets of that statement, suffering and the end of suffering, and then, of course, the Eightfold Path that Pascal talked about the other night. And then the teaching on dependent origination that Guy spoke about a few nights ago expands really those first two links about suffering and its cause and really details how we get caught again and again and keep creating and even recreating our suffering. I want to talk tonight about another teaching that also takes off from the Four Noble Truths. It's a little loud, Kathy, I think. Also takes off from the Four Noble Truths, but really expands the Third Noble Truth, and that is how we find freedom. And it's how freedom is developed, is deepened through our meditation practice and through wisdom or understanding. This teaching is called Transcendent Dependent Arising. And it's not a very common teaching. It's only found uh, once or twice, a few times in the suttas. But it's incredibly um, inspiring. And it's on a retreat like this, a long retreat, that we can really perhaps point to this teaching and offer it as a support for your practice. It's not something you know, to do at an introductory meditation class or a weekend because it's a real depth being pointed to here and it's quite complex. And so I want to share it with you tonight at this uh, point in the retreat where we've really been practicing for all these weeks together. Bhikkhu Bodhi, that great uh, American scholar of Buddhism, calls this sutta and teaching tremendously important. And he's actually got a great article um, on that website, Access to Insight, that goes through this teaching, gives a sutta and all of the different aspects of it that I highly recommend. What's so inspiring about this teaching for me is it's kind of like the Eightfold Path that... um, really speaks to every aspect of our life, how we live our lives, our livelihood, our relationships, but then goes on to deepening in wisdom and meditation. This teaching also starts right where we are. It starts with our everyday unenlightened experience and says, that's where we begin. That's the beginning of the path, and it goes on from there. And it also points to, just like the teaching on dependent origination, to the conditioned nature of this experience. That there are these 12 factors, just like there are in dependent origination, and their relationship is conditioning each other. So there's a relational aspect, and this is quite important. It's not causal, it's not like one factor causes the next to arise but one factor influences or conditions the, our experience of the next factor. And that, so this is what you'll see as we go through this. 
And once we start to understand that as a, as a concept, and certainly once we develop it in our experience, we can then work to create the conditions that allow this unfolding to happen. It kind of makes it doable, and that's the brilliance of the Buddha's teaching, is just to deconstruct experience and then lay it out in this step-by-step process that we can begin to know and trust and see unfolding for ourselves, even right where we are. So it's, it's quite a powerful teaching. The sutta that it's in is the Upanisa Sutta. It's in the Samyutta Nikaya, Connected Discourses. And as I said, it is related to dependent origination. Um, in the sutta, it starts with, it actually includes a whole teaching on dependent origination, but as you know, dependent origination is this teaching of which there are 12 links that describe the human experience, kind of how we get here, and then this moment of contact, and then the craving that follows, and then uh, clinging, becoming, and birth around immediately to old age, sickness, and death, basically suffering. And the emphasis is on you know, how ignorance, if there's not mindfulness, if there's not wisdom, we're just on this wheel, creating more suffering leads to more ignorance, and there's no real escape if there's not wisdom. So it's all about how we get caught in craving and identification. This teaching is about how suffering, that part on the, the, the cycle of dependent origination, actually can lead to freedom actually can lead to a way out. When the Buddha gave these kind of teachings, it's really important to remember that just the nature of language creates a linearity to them. And, you know, a similar list of 12 things, step by step, one after the other. And it's not, uh, they're never as simple or as clear in their individuation as that. I really see these teachings more like a chart. You know, you lay out a big map and it gives you the lay of the land. And, you know, there's all different ways one can move around in that, in that terrain. And yes, there might be a direction to our path or our progress, but it's certainly not literally linear in the way our minds tend to take it. But it certainly points to what qualities we need to develop on this path of practice and also what needs to be let go of. And so this is what the the teaching points to. As meditation, mindfulness has gotten more um, understood or pervasive in the culture, we've talked about how mindfulness is becoming paired with all these things included in therapy, in schools, education, uh, healthcare, etc. You can tell this process has started happening when it starts appearing in cartoons. And, you know, there's a bunch of meditation cartoons that you can find, we often quote. There's one that's a a little more recent in this trend, and it it shows a a couple watching television, and the the, the cartoon bubble is obviously what's coming out of the television as as, uh, the show they're watching. And the bubble says, This week on The Amazing Race to Enlightenment, can Jim and Susie achieve right mindfulness? And will Bob and Candy be eliminated for relentless clinging to self? <laughs> but this is the way culture tends to understand. I mean, they've obviously got some grasp of what's going on here. But they tend to, you know, obviously make light of it. That's okay. But view it as an outer journey. 
you know, as somewhere that we're getting to, uh, the, the race to enlightenment. Transcendent dependent origination points to the inner journey that needs to take place, because that's where this experience happens. And it starts from the beginning, from the beginning of this, this process of waking up and goes right to the very end, to complete and uh, freeing liberation. And so it's just amazing, again, in the, the breadth of the Buddha's understanding and his ability to encapsulate for us this possibility. So in giving this teaching tonight, the purpose isn't to kind of locate where you are on the, on the, on the map, you know, your GPS, you know, like Google with that little thing, you are here. It's not about that. But it really is to see the, the possibility that's here before us, to understand that it is a progression, that there is development that can happen, and to recognize that, as I keep saying, it's not a linear thing where we're just going lockstep one thing leading to the next, but there's lots of feedback loops, there's lots of development that happens at certain stages where we're creating a sense of foundation, and that we'll actually move up and down in these stages many, many times in our path of practice. It's not like, you know, just doing something once and that's it. But what I love about this teaching is it's pointing to the necessity of creating a solid foundation for our practice, that this is really so important and that we do, it's not helpful to try and get ahead of ourselves, that there really is this beauty and power to this graduated unfolding that the Buddha points towards. And when I was thinking about talking about this, you know, this teaching was given in Savati where the Buddha didn't begin to recite until some way into his dispensation. So he'd already been enlightened for many, many years. Um, and when he'd previously talked about his awakening was often in terms of the Four Noble Truths or dependent origination. So he must have developed this teaching watching other people's process. And of course it said he's omniscient, you know, he can read into, understand what's going on internally for other people. So it's out of his wisdom in watching all of these people wake up. And of course reflecting on his own experience because you can trace how he also developed these stages or steps for himself. But I think it's really out of the wisdom of years of his teaching and really seeing what's needed to bring the mind to liberation. So, really wonderful. And so it's very encouraging in that way. It's like, here's the map, here's the prescription, here's all you need to do. And it's also very challenging when you see what's actually required to fully walk this path, what both needs to be cultivated and what needs to be let go of. And it's something you can see as a patterning over a period of practice, like a long retreat like this one. You could see some development in in this sequence. But I think it's actually more helpful to view as a lifetime of practice, that this is the, the lifetime that we're, of, of steps and progression that we're walking on. And who knows, perhaps even many lifetimes that will continue to develop and deepen in all of these steps and stages. So what's interesting about this teaching 
is it actually literally takes off from dependent origination. And again, dependent origination is often depicted in a circle that just keeps going around. And we start at ignorance, go through all the steps, end up in suffering, and boom, you know, right there in ignorance. So there's this sense of the samsaric cycle of existence we often talk about. What this teaching does is actually take off from suffering and say that's the doorway to the end of the path. Now, in hearing the teaching on dependent origination, we can sometimes get the idea, because it's said, it's understandable why we get the idea, that the only place to break the wheel is between um, uh, the Vedna and craving. There's contact, Vedna, feeling tone arises. It's only if we're mindful right there is there that possibility of breaking the cycle. I actually don't believe that's true. I think that's one of the clearest places that we can break the cycle, perhaps the easiest. But I think there are any time that we wake up and know wherever we are on that cycle, we can bring wisdom in and not be so caught, not be so identified, not be so lost. And here in this teaching, it actually says the cycle has gone all the way around and we're in suffering. And right there, we can begin the the process of finding freedom. So just to expand how we understand uh, this teaching or the possibility of freedom. And I always kind of imagine it, you know, so you see the cycle, dependent origination going around. This is kind of like fireworks going off. You know, then it's not a circle. They're shooting off and their end point is actually awakening. It's not that we come back. But it also means that, as I said, it's not that it's just, you know, once you've gone so far on the path, you don't repeat or need to develop further. It really is this kind of moving up and back, especially in the early stages of the path where we're really deepening this sense of the foundation of well-being that we need to come to awakening. And as we establish that more and more, again and again, can't have too much of a, of a depth of that then that creates the, the, seat, the, the, the possibility the, that creates the ground out of which the wisdom and awakening can happen. And I really see it, you know, we often talk about practice like being on a path and often this path goes to a mountaintop and the mountaintop is this sense of, you know, when you wake up and you see everything, you see clearly, you see the full path or full picture but we usually don't live up there. There's not much oxygen. There's not much of anything. So we come down in some way, shape, or form to this reality. But we don't forget what we've seen. We're changed in some way by those experiences of opening, peak experiences, insight, whatever. This is really what this teaching points to, too, that there's a lot of... um, development that happens over and over again and then, you know, at some point ripe for the opening. And what it also does is show us the connection between these experiences. As I said, this uh, conditioned nature of the unfolding that actually there is a real um, wisdom in establishing this foundation of these beautiful qualities of mind and heart like faith or joy or happiness or contentment um, and that we need to spend that time you know, often can op- begin on the path or on a retreat like this just have a real longing 
for freedom, for liberation. And that's, that's beautiful, but this teaching tells us that we need to establish in these very um, wholesome, beneficial aspects of development, like faith, like contentment, like concentration, before the mind can open. And so there's just a real um, kind of logic that's being pointed to here, that we need to have this sense of, of joy, of contentment, of well-being, um, just as the Buddha did in his own path of practice, where he rejected the ascetic uh, practices and took some food and said, the body needs to be taken care of. There needs to be a basic sense of well-being. And then the work of waking up, the process of waking up, can begin to happen. And so we've been talking a lot about these qualities like joy or contentment or peace and how necessary they are for us in our path and practice towards liberation. And in seeing them in this progressive way, to see that um, each stage is necessary for the next one to unfold with some fulfillment, with some sense of development, and that each stage is not an end in itself. We might get to rapture or happiness and see, well, this feels pretty good, you know, why not just rest here for a while? But really this sense of onward leading, and that in each experience there's the thread or the potential of the next deepening. And it's just a matter of finding it. It's just a matter of connecting to it and following that thread. So this is what I'll be talking about tonight. So in this sequence, it is complex. Anytime you have more than a few things, to me it's complex. There's 12 links. I really want to keep emphasizing it's not a matter of remembering it all or remembering any of the details. If you just get a sense of the kind of arc of this teaching, and that's what I think is so interesting about it. If you look at all of the lists the Buddha Buddha gives, there's always this kind of arc to them where there are these foundational factors and then usually some energizing factors and then some calming factors and then usually the wisdom or liberating factors. Same sequence happens here. So the foundation factors are suffering. This is literally, as I said, suffering is the doorway to this teaching, taking off from the teaching on dependent origination, which leads to faith. Faith is necessary as as a factor. Then the energetic factors are joy and rapture. The calming factors, tranquility, happiness, and concentration. And you might uh, recognize those. We've talked about them before. And then that leads into the wisdom factors of knowledge and vision of things as they are, the yata, buta, nanadasana that Carol talked about. And then this whole sequence of, of disenchantment, dispassion. It's kind of the relinquishment that I spoke about early on leading to emancipation, leading to freedom, and then a review, the knowledge that freedom has been gained. So this is the arc, this is the sequence of this whole teaching. As I said, it begins with suffering, with dukkha. I spoke about it quite a bit in the first noble truth, the four noble truths, the truth of suffering, this, this reality, this, this um, truth. And I said in that talk, which I think is so key, that it's noble because we find a path in it. 
well, here's the path we can find. It's also the Noble Eightfold Path, of course, is one uh, big picture understanding. This is more a meditative path. This is the path of our actual inner cultivation, not so much um, about our experience in the world, but really the development of our inner process. And it was how the Buddha woke up. Again, you know the story. He lived a very wealthy, luxury life of luxury. Every sense pleasure was taken care of. And then he saw, open to old age, sickness, and death. He was shocked. He was horrified. It said that he said, how can people live knowing this is going to happen to them? It was kind of boggled his mind. And he just committed from then that point to finding the ending of old age, sickness, and death, finding that freedom. But it was out of suffering. And he didn't have a guide. That's the very definition of a Buddha, is a self-awakened one. But it was that suffering that took him on the path to awakening. And as I said the other day in my talk, it's what impels most of us on the path to awakening. There's this story that some of you have probably heard. Um, Stephen Levine, who's a, a teacher in this tradition and used to teach a lot on death and dying, did a lot of workshops, and would regularly you know, engage the, the people, the students, in a, a dialogue about death and dying, and then at some point ask the question, so who here is going to die? And regularly only a few people would put their hands up. <laughs> because we don't actually turn to it. We can't understand that concept that we might not exist. Yet this teaching is all about turn to that. Know this is a truth. That for all of us, this is going to happen. And let that be your teacher to find a way out, not of denial or pushing away this fact, but actually turning towards it, and understanding it in a different way. As the Buddha said, before my enlightenment, while I was still only an unenlightened bodhisattva, being myself subject to birth, aging, ailment, death, and sorrow, I sought after what was also subject to these things. Then I thought, why, being myself subject to birth, aging, ailment, death, and sorrow, do I seek after what is also subject to these things? Suppose, being myself subject to these things, seeing the danger in them, I sought after the unborn, the unaging, the unailing, the deathless, the sorrowless, supreme release from bondage, Nibbana. So he took the very understanding of pain, of death, of sorrow, of suffering, to seek what was sorrowless, what was not suffering, what was deathless. And this was what impelled him on his quest for awakening. And though our beginning of our quest may not have been quite so dramatic, but we all have our own version of that, where we looked at our lives and the lives of those we knew, and of course we're in contact with through the media, the suffering of the whole planet these days, and just saw there had to be another way. For us, though, we're fortunate. We have the Buddha as a guide. There is this, these teachings and this path of practice that we can follow um, 
huge, huge benefit from having that. And also to recognize that millions of people have practiced these teachings and come to awakening and lessened the suffering. And it's just amazing to see what people have done. You know, people like the Dalai Lama, how much suffering he's experienced in his life, his own personal loss, of course, of his country and, and, and that of um, his own place in, in Tibet. But he, he hears the stories of all of the people who escaped from Tibet and the, the suffering they've had. And yet his heart is still bright, and he has this faith in the teachings, and it's to really see that working for someone as, as powerful as the Dalai Lama. Independent origination, without wisdom, we just keep being lost. We almost drown in the suffering, and we keep perpetuating the causes of suffering. The ignorance just keeps us on the wheel. Here, suffering is a doorway, and what it leads to is faith. This is such a huge shift for us to see that this teaching of suffering that can seem, you know, it's, it's a bummer, let's face it, you know, suffering, it's, it's not good news. But when it's this doorway, it's transformative to really see that process has, has gone on in ourselves or we wouldn't be here, especially here on a long retreat like this. So much faith that has to happen. And we've talked about faith. The Pali word is sadha, and it literally means to place one's heart upon. Love that meaning of just this sense of resting or trusting in something that's that's meaningful to us, that that's actually important to us. When uh, teachers first began bringing these teachings from Asia, they had the sense that a lot of the faith-based practices wouldn't go over that well here, that this scientific, very analytical culture wouldn't take to bringing in um, rituals from another culture that might seem quite foreign. So they were dropped for a long period. I know when I first began my practice, we did very little of bowing or chanting or ritual. But over the years have come to see how for most of us these things are really important to give us a place to connect, to have the heart open, to feel part of a lineage, a part of a tradition, to be kind of held in something that's bigger than just our individual self. And so we're bringing more and more in about uh, the aspects of these practices that actually open our heart to a sense of faith or devotion and see how, how powerful that is. But the essence of it, the important thing is that we have faith in this path to lead to the end of suffering. That's what's important. And all of us have had that moment. I think I spoke about in my earlier talk about my first retreat, hearing my first teacher, Esen Goenka, teach the Dhamma, and just saying, oh right, he's saying something that I never heard before. He's saying the truth, and he's offering a way out. What I had then was blind faith, because I didn't know whether it would work for me, but I had enough faith to keep practicing, to keep coming back uh, to the Dhamma. And I can remember at the end of that first retreat and talking about the other people, you know, 100 or so people on the retreat, and most of them had done more practice than I had. This was my first retreat. Speaking to one woman who said, oh yes, you know, I love this practice, it's really important to me. I, I try to do one or two retreats a year. 
And for most of us as lay people, that's pretty good, right? One or two retreats. And I can remember the hubris. It's like, one, I didn't say this, but, you know, one or two retreats, you know, I'm going to do much more than that. So, you know, just to have that sense of the fire we can have for practice. But the important thing about faith for me at that point was from that point on, every major decision in my life was about how can I get closer to the Dhamma, to Dhamma teachings, to Dhamma people, to Dhamma communities. And I was lucky that I could, and it really shifted my whole life's direction out of that faith, out of that sense of possibility. And so the faith that we're talking about here is both an inner faith or trust, and Sharon Salzberg has written this beautiful book on faith um, that I highly recommend. It's only a small book, but boy, is it powerful. And she says, I want to encourage delight in the word, to reclaim faith as fresh, vibrant, intelligent, and liberating. This is a faith that emphasizes a foundation of love and respect for ourselves. So it really is about our own inner experience, but also faith in the teachings, in the practice, and in the possibility of waking up. This is also the faith that is onward leading, that is so important. As the Buddha said, faith is the beginning of all good things. And he had to have faith as he left his home life, life of luxury, and set out on his quest. He didn't know if awakening was possible because no, there was no one to tell him that. But he had faith that it was so. And that was all he needed. For us, we have the example of the Buddha and all of the millions of people who've walked this path before, before us to know that it's possible. And this faith is a turning point that gets us going on the wheel, on, not on the wheel, sorry, on this uh, path of practice. And I love how these factors turn into each other. So faith is a supportive or causal conditioning um, factor for joy to arise. Faith can often seem, I don't know, a little heavy at times. But to see it as connected to joy, that it's actually an uplift for us in our practice. The, the Pali word is pamoja, and it's often translated as gladness or delight. James has talked a lot about these qualities. In this particular teaching, pamoja is develop, develops with the abandonment of the five hindrances. So it's really pointing to a mind that's not troubled by greed or aversion, by sleepiness, restlessness, or doubt. So it's a meditative experience. There can be a more general kind of joy that we can experience. It's also very skillful and helpful on the path. But in this particular teaching, more related to this lessening of the hindrances. And, you know, I know it can still seem for you that your mind is often confused, but can you remember how confused you were in the early days of this retreat? How much the hindrances were so predominant? And it's hard to kind of have a balance about our experience because the mind, you know, always seems kind of crazy. But to really reflect how they really lessened. When they lessen, pamoja, joy, is what we can experience. This sense of gladness, of freedom 
from the incessant, the relentlessness of the hindrances. So this is not so much a joy of sensual desires, of fulfilling sensual delight, but really this inner joy that's very subtle and is is really to due, due to a mind that's not so conflicted, not so agitated by the hindrances. So it's definitely an inner experience. And we keep talking about how necessary these qualities of mind and heart are, of joy and peace and contentment and gratitude. It's why we cultivate the Brahma Viharas. So I said, these are the foundational practices that we need to keep developing on the path. The Buddha, in his process, as I said, rejected these ascetic practices and took some milk rice, gained his strength, and then he reflected on what could he do next. He, he saw that these ascetic practices, these really rigorous, harming practices weren't going anywhere. He knew that indulgence, luxury wasn't going anywhere. And it's interesting that what happened, many of you know this story, is he sat under the Bodhi tree he remembered a time when he was young, living in his father's palace. His father was a wealthy man. His father was, it said, performing some spring ritual of plowing the field, some kind of fertility ritual. So probably a lot of celebration in the whole village, the whole community. And the Buddha, as a young child, was sitting in the shade, it said, of the rose apple tree. So he's just very content, nothing to do. Everything was taken care of. His father was performing this ritual. And he says, I was sitting in the cool shade of a rose apple tree, then quite withdrawn from sensuality, withdrawn from unwholesome mental qualities, I entered and remained in first jhana. Rapture and pleasure born from withdrawal, accompanied by directed thought and evaluation, aiming and sustaining. Could that be the path to awakening? Then following on that memory came the realization that is the path to awakening. So I thought, why am I afraid of that pleasure that has nothing to do with sensuality, nothing to do with unwholesome mental qualities? I thought, I am no longer afraid of that pleasure that has nothing to do with sensuality, nothing to do with unwholesome mental qualities. But it is not easy to achieve that pleasure with a body so extremely emaciated. Suppose I were to take some solid food, some rice porridge. Sorry, I got the timing wrong. It was that reflection that actually caused him to take the food because he saw that it wasn't about tormenting the body, that there was a pleasure that the mind could create, not born of indulging in sensual pleasures, but actually through cultivation of the mind, and that that was the doorway. And many of you have talked in interviews about touching into that place of the quiet contentment of mind that's not born of outer conditions. This is exactly what the Buddha is talking about. And we do that by noticing when it's present. Again, we've talked about this, James particularly has talked about the wholesomeness, the skillfulness of noticing when these positive states are present, naming them, feeling how they feel in the body and mind their texture, their qualities, their experience, and allowing them, not forcing or grasping, holding on, but just allowing them to expand as they will. This is so helpful.
And we do the mudita practice to specifically cultivate this quality. So lots of ways we can experience it. But as I keep pointing to, primarily a meditative experience. When we let go a little the search for outer happiness and start to cultivate this inner sense of well-being. So the next um, factors we've already talked about because they're um, part of the arc of the seven factors of awakening that Pascal talked about, of rapture leading to tranquility, leading to happiness. Um, Rapture is pity, Pali word is pity, and it's an energetic factor. These are that these are still part of the kind of energizing um, aspect of the experience. And pity happens when the mind just is absorbed in its meditation object. Doesn't mean complete absorption to jhana, but just that there's not a sense of wanting or needing to go elsewhere. There's not a lot of thinking. There can still be some thinking but just a sense of contentment with the meditation practice and process. And so a lot of energy can come in the body. Pascal probably talked about this. And sometimes it can actually be unpleasant as this energy gets strong. But as we learn to work with it, it it's, it's, its functioning is to have us be wrapped or absorbed in the object so that the hindrances, again, tend to be... Um, uh, put held at bay, they're not so predominant. And it's so interesting to me that this very energetic experience of pity can lead to the next factor, which is tranquility, pasadi. But what happens is as we get more absorbed, as we get more contented with the meditative experience and thoughts and, and, and ideas about this and that and wants and not wanting tend to drop away, once the energy refines a little, tranquility is just naturally there. And this is what I mean about finding the thread in the energy of the rapture, which can sometimes be quite a strong state, to find the stillness that's there, the connecting with that calmness. As you notice that the thoughts are, are less, that there's more a sense of just staying within this present moment, not so distracted, can just lead to this. This is the beginning of the calming factors. The next is this, the tranquility, once we establish that, deepen in that, the next factor that's right there with the tranquility is sukha. Sukha is usually translated as happiness, but it's a very subtle form of happiness. Steve Armstrong likes to call it happy contentment of mind and body. It has a sweetness to it. It has a a sense of subtle, pervasive delight. It often makes us smile. You've perhaps had moments of this when, when the clinging is lessened, when the hindrances aren't so present, and there's just this sense of connecting and being at peace with experience, not so contentious, and looking for this little bit of sweetness that can be there. This is sukha. The next calming factor is that of concentration, samadhi in Pali. Now this is again a really important transition for us, that the proximate cause, the conditioning factor for the deepening of concentration is sukha, is contentment, is well-being. 
it's so hard for us to let go of the idea that to get samadhi, we need to beat ourselves up, we need to get the whip out, we need to huff and puff, we need to sit longer or harder or deeper or whatever it is to get to some place that we think we should be at that we want to get concentrated and the only way to get there is to keep forcing the mind back, to keep you know, having this sense of pressure and, and agenda about the experience. That's not on this list, in case you hadn't noticed. What is here is tranquility leading to sukha, contentment, well-being. That's what allows the mind to deepen into concentration. And again, I'm not even talking about levels of jhana here, but just to really trust this um, gradual refining of the mind as we let go of the interest in our papancha, in our thoughts, in our views and opinions, as the hindrances naturally tend to diminish. This is the sequence that will happen. And you might have this happen in moments in a sitting. As I said, we'll go through these this these paths, these steps, over and over again. A need to understand this sequence is a, a natural and um, legitimate, authentic kind of sequence. Don't need to push or hurry. That doing this over and over again will actually deepen each aspect of these experiences. But as we deepen in concentration, the mind becomes what the Buddha described as flexible, malleable, and steady. This is why we develop concentration, not just to get concentrated, not to chalk up, you know, I experience jhana, but to train and develop the mind so we can then turn it towards insight. The mind that is, is flexible and malleable has the capacity to stay with the experience so it can see the nature of experience. And again, we don't need to be talking about jhana levels here, though that can be helpful, but just enough steadiness to see the nature, to start to see things as they are. And we can have always some idea about what that looks like, the depth of concentration, because we use these words, deep concentration, depth of concentration. It's like scuba diving, you know, put on my mask and just keep going down, down, down. And Sharon Salzberg said something once I found so helpful. She said, there's no such thing as depth of concentration. There's just more moments of continuous mindfulness. And that's all we can do. That's all we can string together, is more moments of mindfulness. But that's all we need to do to have enough concentration to start to see things as they are. Nyata Bhutinyana Dasana, that Carol talked a lot about the other night knowledge and vision of things as they are. What this concentrated mind sees when it turns to experience is the nature of things. We see the three characteristics. We see that things are impermanent, that they're unreliable, unsatisfactory, and that there's nothing solid at the center of this. So again, it's a very natural progression that happens. We don't need to force or uh, contrive this. It's what we see when the mind is steady and it looks with clarity, it looks with steadiness. And that leads to this very interesting shifting of the path. This is the wisdom section of the path. When we turn from concentration to yata bhuta, what happens next, again, very naturally, 
is called Nibida. Nibida is a Pali word that we now translate as disenchantment. It used to be translated, and you might know that many of the original translations of the Pali were done hundreds of years ago, and often by people who didn't really understand the practice but were just scholars of the language. They used to translate it as revulsion or disgust. And it was kind of like we're having, you know, joy, tranquility, sukha, concentration, revulsion, disgust. It just, it didn't seem like it made sense. And the scholar, the more modern scholars who do understand the practice say that that's not exactly what's being pointed to. It really is a disenchantment, that we're enchanted by the six sense doors and the pleasures that we see there. And this is a disenchantment. Andy Olensky, who is one of these scholars, he has a whole piece on Nibida that's very um, interesting. He says that this is how it actually is understood. There's a story in the text that usefully illustrates the meaning of this most important of terms, Nibida. A dog stumbles across a bone that has been exposed to the elements for many months and is therefore bleached of any residual flesh or marrow. The dog gnaws on it for some time before he finally determines that he is not finding any satisfaction in the bone. And then he turns away from it in disgust. It is not that the bone is inherently disgusting. It's rather the case that the dog's raging desire for meat just will not be satisfied by the bone. He is enchanted by the prospect of gratification as he scrapes away furiously at the bone. But when he finally wakes up to the truth that the bone is empty of anything that will offer him satisfaction, he becomes disenchanted and spits it out in disgust. So it's really this natural letting go. When we see that the things that we thought would bring us happiness, the objects of the world, experiences, sense pleasures, relationships, material possessions, identity, actually won't do it for us. I gave this whole talk on um, relinquishment, renunciation, just to see it's this natural movement that happens not out of aversion or pushing away, but not finding any pleasure there. And we all have our own examples of that, of things that we used to be passionate about. Remember some hobby you took up that you were just furious about or some sporting activity or athletic endeavor? You know, can you remember back when coming home from school and happiness was turning on the television and watching Gilligan's Island for the 10th time or whatever it was? And now it would be, you know, maybe you'd enjoy it at this point in the retreats like someone else's mind, but, you know... (laughs) It's not, we just don't enjoy those things anymore. This is nibida, disenchantment, something that used to enchant us. And, and this word is, you know, there's a whole, uh, you know, dharma talk you could do on how we're enchanted, lost in illusion of things, and we become disenchanted. There can sometimes be a little poignancy about this as we start to just notice this letting go of what used to bring us happiness. But it's in the context of this well-being that we've created in these earlier foundational steps that allow us to keep this process developing. So from nibida, disenchantment, the next stage is dispassion, viraga, dis 
passion, viraga. Raga is lust, lust after the senses. Viraga is letting go of lust, letting go of that sense again of disenchantment. And this is a significant step in this, where we've the, the disenchantment, I see these all kind of as energies. Again, we're not forcing this, you know, instructing ourselves to do this. It's just a natural kind of letting go and then a turning to the inner experience more directly, more deeply to knowing that's where the freedom can come. And it's said that this point is where the turning to the deathless element has its beginning the deathless element being that place of peace or stillness or pure and complete equanimity that, again, we've all had those moments of, all had that connection with, the deathless element, that possibility of the mind just resting, not pushed or pulled by experience. And it's from that place of stillness, of peace, of immovability that the mind actually can open to full awakening or to any awakening. The next step is liberation, vimuti, in this teaching. The Buddha says, the practitioner understands as it really is, this is suffering, this is the origin of suffering, this is a cessation of suffering, this is the path to the cessation of suffering. So recognizes, has wisdom, insight into the Four Noble Truths. Says these are the taints, and that's, uh, it's kind of like the calaces, but the torments of mind. This is the origin of the taints. This is a cessation of the taints. This is the path leading to the cessation of the taints. And as she is knowing and seeing this, her mind is liberated from the taint of sensuality, from the taint of existence, and from the taint of ignorance. When the mind is liberated, the knowledge arises in her, it is liberated. So it's this pointing out of that stillness, seeing that the mind can actually let go of its entrapment in suffering and the cause of suffering, can let go of the the idea that sensual pleasures will bring happiness, or that um, ignorance that can see wisdom, there's wisdom instead of ignorance. And so liberation, the mind can open in that place of absolute and complete letting go. What's interesting in this teaching is it doesn't stop there. There's kind of a reviewing stage that the Buddha often uses, and this is the last and final stage, is knowledge of destruction of the taints, asavakaya, jnana. And so it's interesting that it's not only that liberation has happened, but we know we're liberated. There's a kind of a surveying that sees this is what the mind is like, that's not filled with greed, aversion, and delusion, not filled with this taint of sensuality or becoming or ignorance. We can know that. There's this This is the faith that's been validated. We can know that. Now again, this is talking ultimately of complete and full liberation. But as we've mentioned a couple of times, 
there is also this understanding on the path that we have many moments of this kind of awakening, whether you call it temporary nibbana or recognize that a moment of mindfulness is a moment that's actually free of greed, aversion, and delusion. When we see clearly the mind isn't so bound, when we open to spaciousness and emptiness and see just things arising and passing, there's not that same sense of delusion. We're actually seeing things the way they are. So we can know this for ourselves in a moment as we naturally allow this process to unfold where we see the, the, the cause of suffering, use it as a, a doorway to lead us out of suffering through the development of these beautiful qualities of mind. As I said, this may seem complicated. You don't need to remember all of it or figure out where you are or feel that you're not anywhere. That's not what I wanted to give this teaching. But to really point to the possibility of this practice and the natural arc that happens as we just keep practicing one breath at a time, one step at a time, deepening and connecting with our experience as it is, not looking to push or hurry the process, but really trusting this developmental way that the path unfolds and that we need to create these, this foundation of well-being and connection of joy and happiness and tranquility. And it's from those places, that place, that the heart and mind can actually begin to open. So really trusting in that. I've given this teaching a number of times and people can, we talk so much about the difficulties in practice. It's so helpful to see the whole scope of this path and to know this is what the Buddha was teaching about. Suffering and the end of suffering, and that it's actually all right here, that we're developing, we're on this path, and it has this beautiful trajectory that as we just keep developing and deepening, it will naturally unfold. This is the way, the direction that this path goes. It only goes in this direction. And it's really a pointer about faith, and faith in our own capacity to wake up if we just keep going. And as I say, that's the thing, to stop and keep going. I often say once the Dharma hook gets in, there's no turning back. You just have to keep going and putting our heart into this practice. And it all starts by acknowledging the beautiful states that we experience, the joy, the contentment, the tranquility. And that allows us to see there's another way that happiness can develop and that we can know for ourselves the possibility of awakening. And the Buddha ends this sutta with a beautiful image. This is the ending of the Upanisa Sutta. Just as monks, when rain descends heavily upon some mountaintop, the water flows down along with the slope and fills the clefts, gullies, and creeks. These being filled up, these being filled, fill up the pools. These being filled, fill up the ponds. 
These being filled, fill up the streams. These being filled, fill up the rivers. And the rivers being filled, fill up the great ocean. So there's this just natural, natural movement. Water always moves in this way until it reaches the great ocean. In the same way, monks. Ignorance is a supportive condition for karmic formation, sankharas. And he goes through dependent origination, ending with suffering, and then says, suffering is the supportive condition for faith. Faith is a supportive condition for joy. Joy is a supportive condition for rapture. Rapture is a supportive condition for tranquility. Tranquility is a supportive condition for happiness. Happiness is the supportive condition for concentration. Concentration is the supportive condition for knowledge and vision of things as they really are. Knowledge and vision of things as they really are is a supportive condition for disenchantment. Disenchantment is the supporting condition for dispassion. Dispassion is the supportive condition for emancipation. And emancipation is the supportive condition for knowledge of destruction of the taints and total freedom. Just as the water fills the streams and the rivers and ends in the ocean, this is the direction of our practice. Let's just let the words settle into silence for a moment. your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.